I'm Dr. Molly Ness, host of the End Book Deserts podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, congratulations goes out to Chris Y. Chris won the Tony Box giveaway. Thanks for entering and uh, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the Tony Box, Chris. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that we'll be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors. Find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, Steve here. And today I've got Michael L. Waymeyer, Chairperson, Department of Special Education and Director and Senior Scientist at the Beach Center on Disabilities at the University of Kansas, and Jennifer A. Kurth, Associate Professor of Special Education, also at the University of Kansas. Join me today as we talk about their book, Inclusive Education in a Strengths-Based Era, Mapping the Future of the Field. What an awesome talk. You're going to love this. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. The holidays are on their way. And they can be a particularly stressful time of year if you don't have a plan. Well, have I got a solution for you. Join my friend Lynn with ConnectFlow Grow in her launch of Stress Less Holidays. Through this live Zoom webinar, Lynn will teach you how to evaluate your stress and develop a plan to reduce it. This is an abbreviated version of her 21-day Stress Less Challenge to give you the best tools in the shortest time frame. A less stress holiday is priceless. Your investment of $17 per person or 2500 flat rate per organization is the first step towards taking control of holiday stress. Learn more about stressless holidays and join by going to my website, stephenmaletto.com sponsors. Click on the ConnectFlow Grow logo and the link will take you to where you can find out more information and sign up. Time for you to stress less during the holidays. <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Michael A. Waymeyer is the Ross and Mariana Beach Distinguished Professor of Special Education, Chairperson, Department of Special Education, and Director and Senior Scientist at the Beach Center on Disability, all at the University of Kansas. He is a past president and fellow of the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and the Council for Exceptional Children's Division on Autism and Developmental Disabilities, a fellow of the American Psychological Association, Division 33 Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Autism Spectrum Disorders, and a fellow of the International Association on the Scientific Study of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. Jennifer A. Kurth is Associate Professor of Special Education at the University of Kansas. Her academic interests include methods implementing inclusive education, including methods of embedding critical instruction within the context and routines of general education, as well as methods of providing appropriate supports and services for individual learners. Today we're talking about Mike and Jenny's book, Inclusive Education in a Strengths-Based Error, Mapping the Future of the Field, from Norton & Company 2021. Mike and Jenny, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Thanks for having us here. It's great to be here. 
Thanks for thanks for having us on, Steve, and hello to everyone out there. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. And uh, you know, Mike and Jenna, before we talk about your book, Inclusive Education in a Strengths-Based Era, Mapping the Future of the Field, could you talk about where or how your interest in special education developed? Sure. Um, you know, I think there's probably lots of routes that people come to these, uh, you know, areas of interest in. And I think mine is... Um, you know, kind of grounded in my lifelong interest in social justice issues. When I was in college, I wanted to be everything from like an attorney. Uh, you know, I, I just had all these sorts of things that I thought was going to be what I could do to make the world a slightly better place. And um, as part of my college experience, I had a kind of chance meeting with a woman who was a mother of a student, uh, of a, a young woman um, who had um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. And this woman, Linda, um, had been really working as a special educator to desegregate the programs that had been existing in the schools at that time in terms of, you know, every student with disabilities at that school had been shipped off to another school in a different town where they would receive their education. And so uh, she had been really working to bring kids back to their home school. And I met her when she was beginning this process. And I don't really remember why we met, um, but she she made a pretty big impact on me in terms of thinking about special education as a social justice issue, the importance of inclusion, um, the importance of students learning together and being together. And so I think that for me, that was really foundational. I was young. I was very interested in doing these sorts of things. And um, when I graduated from college, uh, she hired me to be a paraprofessional. And that really just set me off on my trajectory of then going on and getting a teaching credential and then becoming more interested in how I can make a difference through research. And so it's, it's really led me to this place where I am now. Very cool. Thanks. How about yeah. you, Mike? Um, well, I think Jenny points out what is true for almost er uh, everybody in the field. They, they get there because they have some sort of a personal connection. Um, usually that starts in the schools. I'm old enough that I grew up in an era where there weren't kids with disabilities in public schools. So I really had no exposure to students uh, with disabilities and no sense that that was something, um, you know, that one actually did. Um, and so, uh, but during my undergraduate uh, uh, experience, um, I had a friend who was majoring in special education who kept talking about that. And um, I decided that when I was kind of looking around for other things I might want to be, that I would take uh, that course. And really that one course uh, uh, showed me pretty quickly that was my vocation. And I think, you know, these issues of social justice, I think most of us get into the field um, for a sense of wanting to do things that make a difference. So, Excellent. Excellent. Very cool. I appreciate you all sharing. That's a, is, uh, I'm always think it's neat to hear how people get into the, the areas that they are. So very awesome. I appreciate it. The, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about your book. I mean, do, do you remember where the original idea for your book, Inclusive Education as Strength Space Era, Mapping the Future of the Field came from? I mean, what inspired you to write the book? Um, we were approached uh, by uh, our uh, now <clears throat> uh, developmental editor at Norton, Carol, and um, 
to with the possibility of editing a series. They were interested in a, a series uh, that was targeted to teachers and practitioners, uh, focused on very uh, practical-oriented uh, uh, elements of inclusive education, but very specifically wanted it to reflect um, sort of changing ways of thinking about disability and strengths-based approaches. And so Jenny and I's work kind of really dovetails nicely. And uh, as we got to mapping out what books would come in sort of a sequence, um, I think it was Carol that probably suggested that there needs to be some overarching framework that uh, can frame future books in the series so that uh, people know what they uh, what expect from a big picture uh, era so that that's that's the intent of this book and then it will be followed by books that have more targeted uh, practical uh, focus points gotcha and that and that speaks loud i mean it's it's comes through loud and clear because you even start with uh, defining what special education is and uh, and getting some of the explanations of the uh, of IDEA and uh, and so forth and so on, which is awesome because that's one of the things that even you know having discussions with people about uh, understanding IEPs and what it's all meant to be, which is good stuff. So a great place to start. So excellent. You know, in the first chapter titled, What is Special Education Today? On page one, this is noted. One can even suggest that the students who are educated under IDEA are different from the students for whom the law was originally written or that how we understand disability has changed in the last 50 years. Could you put this in context and talk about what's being referenced here? Mm-hmm. Well, I wrote that, so Jenny uh, uh, wants to make sure that I can back it up. Um, <laughs> You know, I think there. Are, uh, I think that's true in a number of ways. Um, uh, you know, first of all, the context uh, of what was then called Public Law ninety four one forty two was nineteen seventy five. It was signed into law by Gerald Ford uh, in seventy five. It had to be fully implemented by nineteen seventy eight. And I think it's fair to say that the the audience uh, for whom much of the focus of that earliest iteration of the law was uh, students who at that time had no uh, place in schools. Uh, And those were mainly, though not exclusively, students with intellectual disability, students with multiple disabilities, um, who were either not educated or were being educated in primarily private, often nonprofit entities. So it were uh, there, the uh, the court cases that led into the public law were with those populations. And so uh, at one level, uh, I think the, 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 the categorical areas, the disability categorical areas uh, for which the original law was intended have both broadened in terms of, uh, you know, students covered in those and by the sheer number of categorical areas. So, you know, the current iteration of IDEA has more categorical areas than did the original law. But I think there are uh, also uh, some more 
basic things. Um, you know, the technology that is uh, ubiquitous today simply wasn't there in 1975. We, you know, and so, and, you know, uh, uh, kids uh, with and without disabilities are, are digital natives. They, they, uh, they come to school having used technology and, and so, you know, that changes a lot of things. Uh, to its credit, iterations of IDEA have sort of changed expectations for students. And so the kinds of, you know, when 1975, we didn't have a lot of models of what education should look like for uh, students uh, with more extensive support needs. And, and so, you know, they were segregated in nature the, the previous century and a half. All we had was a history of segregation and, and separation. And so, uh, so you know, the, the more and more uh, kids come to school uh, with a, a rich early childhood uh, experience, starting often from birth. Uh, and so they're better prepared. The expectations um, are higher than they were then. Uh, and, you know, I think it's also fair to say that schools are just more diverse places today than they were uh, 50 years ago or so, you know. Uh, so, um, you know, I just think there are many, many factors that um, that have come into play that uh, make uh, the focus of the law different than what it was back then. Um, so it, it is interesting because when I read that statement, that's why I had to ask the question because, you know, I think about, uh, uh, you know, I, when I was in school, I, I would have had no clue um, as I got a little older than, you know, in those days there were special areas in the, the building where kids went where they had carpeting or something like this. And you're like, well, there's got to be something different going on over there because we don't have carpeting <laughs> and they got carpeting. And uh, um, but I've. It's interesting talking with colleagues who were who were teaching in those days, who were working with kids, and in some cases, I have friends who actually worked at uh, um, sites where they worked with kids who you know would never have gone to public schools. And I think it's I think it's neat today that you know there's some devices that uh, one in particular I have in mind where kids can now move symbols around, and then it lets them communicate because it puts words to what they're spelling and such that if this was 75 would never not even close to it yeah i think uh, uh i don't remember if it's in the book but uh, uh you know uh, i think there's a there's reason to believe that we're heading toward an era where uh, because of technology and other factors it really won't matter what you can't do it, it what will matter is the support you have in place that enable you to do what you want um, you know, I think uh, technology changed so rapidly uh, over the last decade, and it's it, it's only going to speed up in in its uh, power. And uh, so, things that were not really probable for students, uh, 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 you know, maybe a decade ago, now are just a matter of putting the right supports in place, which is just awesome. Yeah. And it is an exciting thing to think about how different our expectations and hopes and dreams for people can be with these technologies in place. Whereas, you know, 
even 20 years ago, we were teaching, you know, identifying coins and balancing checkbooks and, you know, learning street signs. Well, now, you know, we have apps that do a lot of those things. We use credit cards or Apple Pay. We drive Uber or we ride an Uber and Lyft. And it's, it, these are just things that have happened in a short amount of time. And you, you project that forward into the future. And it really does open up this possibility of, you know, thinking about what are the skills that people need to learn. And it really is about directing their supports and, and utilizing supports to live the lives they want to live. And it does I think compel us or, you know, to really reimagine what special education services could be so that we're thinking about this unknown future in a way that we've maybe not been doing as much, um, you know, in our schools today and, and historically. It, it is so just, I mean, this, this section just, just itself just spoke so loudly to me because of the differences. I mean, and, and the movements forward and, and it's, you know, and it, as, as a result, I mean, kids experience other kids, that they never would have met nor seen in both sides <laughs> of right. whatever's going on, which which leads me to uh, something that I thought was pretty cool. And just as a note, you know, I'm a former high school principal and all this in a couple of different settings. And so it's interesting as certain things really grab my attention as I was reading your book, which would, for an example, the first one. And uh, and now I got to ask this one, because in, it, you know, in chapter one, you also talk about how the LRE requirement has been misinterpreted. So this one really spoke to me. So we got to talk. We got to go here. <laughs> uh, again, that was in a, a, a part I was responsible for. So I'll, I'll lead on it. Jenny can chirp in on uh, uh, improving it. You know, the LRE, the least restrictive environment uh, uh, requirements in IDEA. At one level, uh, if you think back to 1975 when the law was written, it incredibly uh, forward thinking. I mean, 1970, it, fundamentally, the language in the LRE statement has not changed in the 45 plus years. Um, you know, and it says, just paraphrasing, the, the first part of it says, that to the maximum extent appropriate, children with disabilities should be educated with children who are not disabled. And, um, you know, that was pretty radical for 1975. Um, and, um, you know, I think it, it argues that the, the, the lens that the framers of IDEA, and, and I have had the privilege of, of knowing a couple of those folks over the years. Uh, and so I, I can confirm this just from conversations with them. The, the frame they had is, is that students with disabilities should be educated with their non-disabled peers. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, the quibble we have uh, with uh, how LRE is uh, too often framed is with the second part of the LRE statement, which it, which goes along the lines of the, the removal of a, a child with a disability from a regular education environment should occur only if the nature or severity of the disability is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. Now, uh, I obviously read part of that last bit. <laughs> That's pretty much uh, uh, verbatim uh, the language. And unfortunately, and really from the very start, 
that has been read or interpreted to, to mean that removal of children with disabilities from regular education settings can or should or does take place based upon the nature or severity of the child's disability. I, I spent um, a, a, a decade in public schools teaching students with uh, more extensive support needs. I spent a lot of time uh, in other roles, in IEP meetings and whatever else. I really have yet, at that time, had yet to see uh, somebody that started with a general education classroom to see how a student would do and then only had students receiving their education outside of those contexts if they were unsuccessful. And 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 that's what the law says, though. It says it, 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 removal should take place only uh, if education with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. So, you know, we, we, we got into a system that placed students as a function of the type or severity of their disability. And uh, that's, I don't believe that's what it was intended. Uh, I think that what the law says is that kids have a right to be educated with their non-disabled peers. And that unless you've tried <laughs> a lot of things to make that successful, you shouldn't be considering alternative placements. Gotcha, gotcha. The, uh, the, that's what uh, kind of struck me is this, because it, it does seem to be something that over the, the years, it, uh, people have different ways of looking at it. Jenny, is there something else you want to? You know, the, I think the only thing that I would add is that one of the other sort of misinterpretations that I see a lot working with teachers and school teams is this conflating of special education with a place. And I think that's part of what has happened with the LRA continuum is that they imagine, you know, a series of buildings or classrooms and say, we'll find the right classroom for this person based on the severity of their disability. And so if you have a more severe disability, you know, we'll go in this more, um, you know, separate special place with more special people doing special things, you know, farther and further removed. And, and, you know, really special education should not be considered as a place. And it should be thought of as a set, a set of supports and services that are with that student where they're being educated, which should be in that general education classroom. And so I think we really have done ourselves a disservice in the field of constantly thinking of these special education classrooms as the place to receive special education services, which is just, you know, it's incorrect and it's really not serving students well to think that way. Um, and I guess the only other thing I might add is that it bothers me that we think about the degree to which students with disabilities should be restricted versus the degree to which they should be included. And that's, you know, that restrictive word shows up in LRE and, you know, you don't think about how much a person should be restricted very often unless you're thinking about, you know, a prisoner or a child with a disability. And so it, it's it's not working well to have these kind of frameworks in mind. And, you know, I really think that dramatic rethinking of this is needed so that we can serve more students in the inclusive settings more of the time and and really abandon this notion that there's you know special places for special students or you know some kind of euphemism along those lines oh comes well, through and, and, uh, steve you mentioned um at the at the onset uh that we spend some time trying to kind of 
uh, I think, examine uh, what the law says and, and what the practice is. And, you know, as Jenny points out, I mean, the law has been clear from the get-go. Special education is defined and has always been defined as specially designed instruction. Uh, it is not a place that kids go to. It is not a, an adjective to describe a, a student. And I, you know, I think that along with uh, the misinterpretation of this part of LRE, it's uh, a very damaging notion has been this continuum of, of uh, placement settings, which again, uh, uh, Jenny referenced the idea that there is this from, uh, you know, being in the classroom with all of your same age peers, to all the way down to being in a completely separate segregated uh, school building. And, 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 you know, the continuum, I, I think uh, uh, these ideas that nature and severity of disability was aligned with these notions of continuum, it just fell into place that people you know, would say, okay, you would go over here. My, my teaching career with kids with more extensive support needs in, uh, in the early eighties was in fact, right in the, in a segregated, uh, uh, separate school building. And that's that's just where schools put them. In. You know, within a decade, they were in segregated classrooms in typical high schools. Um, unfortunately, uh, for a lot of kids, not much has changed since then. <laughs> right. You know, what's interesting is that that's one of the things that uh, as a principal, you had to pay attention to with, and this is what it also made me think of, is that, so then if we're in classes, if you put 17 kids in a classroom who have, if 17 kids who have special needs in a classroom where there's 22 kids and 17 of them have the special needs, that's not the, what, what they're talking about, right? <laughs> it's not, right. It's definitely a, not. Definitely <laughs> not. I mean, a, a part of it is we want to make sure that we're maintaining some natural proportions so that we have real opportunities for people to learn with and from each other. And that's going to happen in an inclusive classroom with those types of natural proportions. And, you know, you look across the nation and about 13% of kids receive special education services. So one would expect that about 13% of students in any classroom would be receiving special education services. And, you know, that's an imperfect metric, but I think if that's, you know, something that's kind of tangible for people to grasp onto, that might be a starting place to think about, you know, are we serving students inclusively by maintaining those natural proportions? And, you know, there's a whole host of other things that could go along with it, quality definition of an inclusive placement. But I think that would be a, a place to start because you're right, that sort of um, proportion will not, count in my mind, I guess, as an inclusive setting. It's a, it's an, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, just as a side note, when I was a teacher, uh, I was in a school where we were teamed and, uh, and we had uh, an extra teacher on our teams. There were two teams in the 10th grade that had ex extra teacher. And so it was cool because the kids would go home and they would talk about how uh, they had uh, five teachers on their team. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, that's because we were the, we were the team that uh, had the special education assistance and so they would work with all kids and as a result of that um yeah. no one was thought of as being helped by somebody you know right different or less than or something absolutely i mean it sends a really clear message to everybody to every student every family every teacher about who has worth and who is you know valued as members of the classroom and i think that messaging is really important so that's that's cool that you were able to do that 
Thanks. That was, well, that was a neat thing. A lot of, you know, a lot of kids who don't, uh, aren't labeled with a disability benefit from the kinds of specially designed instruction that, that are available to students who receive special education services. You know, so it's a win-win, really. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Um, in, in chapter two, can we broaden our reach, strength-based approaches to disability? It, it encourages me to ask, what is a strength-based approach to disability? Um, the, um, uh, you know, the premise of strengths-based approaches, uh, uh, historically, if you look at how disability has been conceptualized, it has been within a deficits or disease model and, and people with disability are seen as broken or pathological, or, you know, the problem resides within the person. Uh, and, uh, that by and large is the model that, uh, you know, was in place through, uh, you know, the first 30 years of, uh, IDEA. Um, but toward the end of the 20th century and into our current century, there have been there have emerged ways of thinking about disability that change that from a deficits or a, a pathological model to models that emphasize social uh, constructs that that one is disabled by the the environment in which one lives, learn, works, and plays, and that uh, each of us come to that environment with different strengths and, and areas of support needs. Uh, some the, a, a version of this is called social ecological models, where they uh, it's the interaction between the person and the environment. But in all of these, the, the locus for disability shifts from inside the person, that is the person being broken or, or, or diseased or whatever, to the interaction between the person and the environment. And so these, these, these social ecological models and these newer ways of thinking about disability lend themselves to approaches that begin with what a student does well. What is it a student likes? What are they good at? What are their passions? What are their interests? And then look at, well, what is it in the context that we can change that enable, you know, what can we do to enhance personal capacity? What can we do to change the context if we need to? And then what kinds of supports can we we put in place? And, you know, we have good models of uh, uh, changing environments. You know, the ADA, which is celebrating uh, 35 years now, has, has been, um, you know, has shown us that if you do curb cuts, Lo and behold, people who use wheelchairs can access the environment, right? You build ramps, whatever else, wide doors, all that stuff. Well, the same is true. If, if your curriculum requires a student to read and that student doesn't read or doesn't read well, then they're not going to do well in your, in your model. But with digital technology, we can deliver the same content via, uh, you know, uh, text-to-speech and through supports that enable students to be able to to read the same kinds. So, so there you're changing the context in that case, the context being the curriculum itself. And then of course, you know, I think all of us are learning what it's like to live with, uh, and do things we, uh, we want to do with greater supports. Uh, you know, I, I have the good fortune to travel uh, internationally uh, quite a bit or did before the pandemic. And um uh, you know, I can I can be about anywhere in the world and use my GPS enabled smartphone to get from one place to another. And, you know, I I'm completely dependent upon this little device, but 
you know, and I don't have a grasp of the language or whatever else, but I'm able to do that. So, so we can do these three elements, uh, uh, you know, uh, beginning with students' strengths and interests and preferences, what are they good at, using that to identify enhancing uh, personal capacity, modifying the environment, and then uh, putting in place supports. Those are the basic elements, I think, of strengths-based approaches. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, that's cool. So one of the things that I want to, you know, as I'm progressing through the book, your book, it's, uh, it's awesome as you get into uh, just everything explaining this, because, you know, it's funny. I, I, funny is not the right word. I, you know, over time working with colleagues and such, you know, you, sometimes you, you, you want to make sure that everyone understands what we're trying to do and what in working with kids and families and such. And, and I think families is most Im, um, important also as a, as a thing that uh, we, sometimes we forget. I don't, uh, I think we, we get into the thought that we're a school and we do our thing, but if we didn't have the people that come to our school, we don't, can't do our thing. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I probably should get better words than thing. But you know, the, the point is, is that you know, in chapter three, how can we teach better? You have a section called Family School Partnerships in which you talk about IEPs and the importance of connecting with families and creating partnerships. In this section, you talk about how these partnerships are formed. Could you explain the family partnership and why it's important to the child's success? Sure. Um, one of the things that we were, you know, really thinking about this is that, uh, you know, family members are equal members of every education team who probably have the most vested interest in the child's positive outcomes. Yet, you know, really too often families are feeling marginalized and disfranchised. There, you know, things happen kind of over time that, um, you know, emphasize these kinds of feelings and, and make them maybe feel that way. They're outnumbered on IEP teams, they often feel like they're outvoted. Uh, teams tend to use jargon that can be uh, difficult for non-specialists to understand, including families. Um, oftentimes families don't have all of the information that schools have in terms of how their child's progressing, what's happening day in and day out. And so they're, they're coming at this from a place of just not having as much uh, say. Uh, and another thing that can often happen is families are given, you know, kind of superficial opportunities to provide input and interact. So they're given drafts of paperwork, uh, drafts of IEPs, even without meaningful input and co-development in that. And they're, they're kind of overall feeling is they're just asked to show up and consent to what the school is already proposing versus really being an equal partner. And this is not the fault of teachers or school teams and doing this is just kind of the busyness of, I think, what's happening, but the result is not good. Um, so we do know, though, that when families are involved and are true partners, that students have better outcomes. And so with this in mind, we wanted to really think about how we could support teachers in using this partnership to better, you know, promote student outcomes and really thinking about what are some sort of tangible things teachers and school teams could do to maximize that relationship. So things like uh, drafting parts of the IEP together, having families give reports uh, and take data about what's happening in the, the home and the community, um, you know, making sure that uh, technical terms are explained and used in ways that are, are family friendly and those sorts of things so that we can really create a partnership and not have uh, the sort of status quo of, of families really just being people who consent to what the school is already proposing. You know, that's a, 
it, th- this whole chapter made me get in this. Like even with my podcast, I had somebody reach out to me um, from another state. They weren't somebody who knew me personally, but they'd listened mm-hmm. to the podcast and they reached out to me in, in an email and said, uh, can you help me understand an IEP? And they explained that they were a parent and, and they were frustrated because they, they'd go to these meetings and there'd be a lot, lots of people and lots of words used. And, and then she was expected to sign off and then leave. And, right. and so I, I did a little series where we, we talked about the way it's supposed to go and, right. uh, and that idea. And that's what you had me thinking about here is I've, that's, uh, over the years, I've had lots of those types of things where I've had to explain, you know, to my staff to say, let's, let's redo this. All right, let's go back. And now I want you to reach back out to the parents and explain what's actually going on here and something that they understand. Right. And, you know, I think that a lot of times, like I said, teams are, you know, educators are coming at this with good intentions, but the intentions don't mask the impact of making families feel a bit disenfranchised. And so, you know, I think there's simple things we can do to improve that. It's, you know, one would be rather than bringing a draft, bring data. And let's talk about the data that we're, we're seeing and use that to create um based on the student's strengths and interests and preferences and what the family is seeing as, you know, long-term goals and, you know, friends and family, how can we use these data to draft goals and services that will help us realize that and leverage student strengths and so forth. And so it's really, um, you know, great opportunities to change some of those practices that will be a little bit more inclusive and more supportive of families in, in these, in these um, you know, day in and day out tasks. Love it. Love it. it you know, chapter three is one of my favorite chapters for many reasons. And part of that reason is that you share some HLPs or high leverage practices for teachers to use. Can you describe some of the HLPs and explain what makes them better? Sure. Um, one of the things that I, I don't know if it's just me, I'm assuming other people have thought this too, but I like that HLP, you can pronounce it as help. And I like that play on words. I think it's really clever of the developers to do that because that's really what I think of as HLPs. They provide help to educators and team members. And that help is giving people really concise, kind of user-friendly, um, you know, research-based strategies and practices. And so there are 22 HLPs that were developed by experts in the field of special education. And they're really just educational practices that have strong research support and can be implemented across, you know, different content areas, different grade levels and so forth. And I think that's really important for any teacher who wants to provide that kind of ambitious, effective, strengths-based education. They can use those HLPs teaching whomever, wherever, whatever. And that's just really helpful. So um, like I said, all of those HLPs have support from high quality research, meaning that using them is more likely than not to result in positive student learning outcomes. And of course, teachers also need to ensure that they're, you know, personalizing their supports, but these are really good places to start. Um, It's, I think, also important to think that those 22 HLPs are organized around four practices, so collaboration, assessment, um, social, emotional, behavioral practices, and instruction. And so that means if I'm a teacher and I want to know, for example, um, how to write a really good instructional goal, I could look at HLP 11 or, you know, probably others as well and get some really reliable information about how to identify and prioritize long-term goals. And I think because there's 22 of them and 
they're organized in those four areas. It's a little bit more user friendly than something that's, you know, a big clunky data set or, uh, you know, that you have to really search around for. But I think these are pretty parsimonious. And like I said, they draw on the best evidence we have at the time, at this time. And so um, it's a really nice resource for educators who are wanting to make sure that they know and they're using things that they know to be um you know, good, solid research-based strategies in our field today. Um, so I, I think they're just going to be a really nice resource to help support teaching and learning for all teachers and, and all students. Cool. You know, this is, I, I just know that this is, you know, this is the type of stuff that teachers want too, by the way, you know, to be able to have access to and things that make them think about what they could do because, it, you know, you kind of get stuck in a rut and things like this and, and, uh, it's, um, but it's it, it's very practical information to be able to share, and so they take a look at that and how to use. So, um, kudos. The, you know, my, my next favorite chapter is, and at some point I need to ask you guys if you have a favorite chapter. But uh, um, we, we've got uh, is chapter four, which gets into how do we know it's working? Evidence in support of inclusive education. So, how do we know it's working? This is this is maybe one of my favorite chapters, if you're asking, because I think this is important um, in terms of we want to do what we know to be research-based effective practices in the field. And it's kind of going back to the HLP conversation that there's a lot of fads and a lot of trends that may or may not be effective and research-based. And so directing our attention to what we know works, given the limited time, limited resource, and the strong commitment to doing the right thing that we have in the field of education. So thinking about that in the context of inclusive education, I think we're at a pretty exciting time in our field where um, we know across all sorts of outcome domains that inclusive education benefits all students. Um, it's been associated with academic and social, behavioral, communication, emotional, positive outcomes for students with disabilities. And this has really been replicated time and time again across the globe. It's not something that, you know, it works in Kansas or it works in the United States, but this is a thing that we know to be really effective when we teach students in the general education classroom teach them great aligned content with the supports they need, uh, they are going to make, in many cases, better progress than had they been taught in a separate segregated classroom. Um, and we know that this um, is true uh, in terms of uh, students with disabilities, but we also know that there's no harm or negative impacts to students who do not have disabilities. And this is another thing that's been really consistently research and time and time again there's just been no harm found but in fact in some cases there's an actual benefit to including students with disabilities in the general education classroom meaning that students without disabilities benefit academically or behaviorally and you know you can hypothesize why that might be um, and it's it's most likely that because inclusive education requires teachers to collaborate and to be innovative and that by providing this kind of collaborative innovative instruction where they're building in different supports and layering in uh, you know different access points for students it's going to benefit kids who might be learning english or it might be benefiting kids who um, you know have a preference for a way that they're going to learn or particular areas of strength it's going to really you know open avenues of learning, I guess, for lots of different students. So it doesn't surprise me at all that inclusive education has been found so consistently to be, um, you know, 
overall positive factor for students without disabilities. And, um, you know, I think another thing just to kind of couch all of this in is that our current system, which has really been involving separating and segregating and remediating deficits, has not resulted in positive long-term outcomes for people with disabilities in almost any metric, you know, employment, graduation rates, or other. And I think because our current system is so dedicated to separation and segregation kind of everywhere we look, it's pretty clear that this approach isn't is not going to be effective in the long term and so that we really do need to take the shift and commit ourselves to inclusive education for all students so that every student with and without disabilities can have these enviable positive lives as adults and throughout the lifespan so you know i think it's exciting that we're living in a time when we have technology to make some of this more realistic we have the research to support uh, effective strategies uh, we have you know, no questions left about the benefits of inclusive education. And so we're at this point where we're, I think, fitting the pieces together uh, to make it um, more uh, accessible and approachable, I guess, for all students and all teachers. Well, and, you know, I think uh, to play off of uh, a couple of Jenny's points there, uh, when the law was passed in 1975, as I said before, you know, our nation and the world really only had experience with segregating and uh, putting people and you can find some really horrific outcomes of that particular model. But, you know, the special education system was built on, you know, sort of they people did what they knew. But there's not a shred of evidence that that was the best way to do it. This was it was not established as the best way to educate learners, you know, there's, there, there's no, there was no evidence. It was just simply the way it was done at that point in time. And, and there was no prior alternatives uh, that, that were out there. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's actually, you know, a IDEA has from the get go um, uh, expressed a preference for educating learners with disabilities in general and regular education settings. Uh, and B, um, just because we it started that way doesn't mean it was supposed to be the best way to do it. I, I don't really think we should have, you know, we, we, uh, people who support inclusion often find themselves in a position of having to def defend that by producing evidence. And it's important to have evidence of the efficacy of it. But on the other hand, I don't see any evidence of the efficacy of, of, uh, of not including kids. And in fact, as Jenny pointed out, it's pretty clear that that hasn't worked very well for 40 plus years. And gosh, maybe we ought to try something different, you think? Yeah, <laughs> I very, do think. <laughs> yeah, very good point. Very good point. That's, uh, you know, and it's just, I'll go back to my teaching days. It was the coolest thing when you saw kids interacting with each other and, you know, and, and I'm, and I know that, you know, the kids aren't naive that much. They knew that the, the teacher on their team was helping uh, specific kids. But at the same time, when helped everybody, you know, they'd, you'd have parent meetings where a parent would come in and say, who's this other teacher who's on the team? <laughs> that, and, and it usually was because they wanted to thank them for helping their child with whatever it was they were helping them with. And, and then at the same time, you have the, the kids uh, interacting with kids who have these special needs who you know, that never would have happened if they'd been mm -hmm. separated. So it's good stuff. Yeah. You know, one of the things you guys talk about is you talk about the fourth generation of inclusive education. 
Tell us what that is. Um, these ideas of generations of inclusive practice is something that uh, uh, my colleagues and I have used for a while to help kind of understand that, you know, things change and, and practices are generational. They're based upon context and, you know, uh, what's, what's around. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, there have been, uh, we talked about three generations. The first generation was simply getting kids with disabilities from uh, into the general education classroom, right? Um, I was teaching, like I said, in the early 80s. I had students coming to school. I taught adolescents. I had students coming to school for the very first time. They'd never stepped across the school door, you know, and they were in segregated settings. And, you know, so as, as what was called mainstreaming and then the regular education initiative, all these kind of precursors to inclusive education, the, the focus was kids physically being in, in general education settings. Once you had kids in the general education setting, you had to figure out how to teach them there, right? Uh, you know, uh, because, you know, they, they, they have different ways of learning. They, they need specially designed instruction. So the second wave was in, in many ways, the development of these, this uh, specially designed instruction that worked in the context of, of, uh, uh, of general education settings. I think many of them are embodied in the high leverage practices that Jenny talked about and wrote about. Uh, so that was sort of the second wave. And then, you know, we had in, in our country, we had a movement in the right at the turn of the 20th uh, century into the 21st century, uh, you know, uh, sort of a standards based reform and uh, getting back to basics kind of movement that's, you know, kind of swung back away from that now. But, you know, at that time, the focus shifted, and I think positively for students with disabilities, uh, from just where you're educated, where you're educated is important, but what you're learning is also important. So the third wave of uh, uh, third generation of inclusive practices was focused back on the what. How do we how do we teach you know the core content areas, math, science, reading? If these things are important for every kid, then certainly they must be important for kids with disabilities. And so there was a lot of work in that context around um, uh, you know um, uh, how do we how do we ensure that students have greater access to uh, a challenging uh, uh, curriculum that all kids need to master in sports. And of course, none of those are unimportant any longer. And um, in many cases, we're still working on one, two, and three, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's not like we've solved these things, but I think we're moving into a, a different era and I think fourth generation uh, inclusive practices will embrace these ideas of strengths-based approaches, the social models of disability. I think, I think it's true that really over the course of the first three generations, disability is still seen as a deficit. It was, you know, remediative and it was addressing deficits and it was, you know, it wasn't, wasn't strengths focused. And so, you know, when we shift over to what do kids like, what do they do well, you know, and we shift away from the focus on, on deficits and, and disorder, uh, and we look at, you know, what kind of supports can we provide and what can, how can we modify the environment? It changes, I think, the focus and it, it becomes even more a part of all kids. It's not just 
kids with disabilities in a reg, in a in a non-disabled kids classroom. It's everyone's school. It's everyone's classroom. And so, you know, we we move away from viewing students through a lens of impairment and we move forward to viewing all kids as kids who probably in some way, shape or form need supports to be successful. You know, it is clearly not only kids with disabilities who struggle to be successful in many American schools. You know, it's 40, 50 percent of the, the 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 schools. And, you know, so, uh, you know, we need to think uh, the fourth generation kind of tries to move even further away from these these unhelpful notions of uh, sort of students being different because they have a disability and looking at kids with disabilities as needing supports, but also that all kids benefit from supports and, and um, uh, that every student in the school uh, has various instructional support needs and can benefit one from another. So I think that's where, in some ways, I, I think, I, you know, we, we've done work on uh, how do you identify support needs. I think there's a model out there sometime, we're not there yet, but there's a model out there sometime in which we don't worry about diagnosing anything. We don't worry about what your impairment might be or what are all these things. We just look at where you need, what kinds of supports you need to be the most successful you can be. And we do that for every kid. And I think that's at in large measure what we talk about when we talk about these more 21st century ideas of personalized learning and, you know, the application of some of these 21st century skills. You know, there's a, a, a you know, there's a lot of there's some good work on there on the on the absolute uh, lack of utility of the notion of average, you know. <laughs> Uh, we built schools around kids being average and above average. That means half kids will always be failures, right? I mean, we want all kids to be great. Our our colleague Young Zhao talks about going for great for every every child, and so I think that's really um, uh, not very succinctly, <laughs> but the gist of what we mean by fourth uh, fourth generation inclusive practices. Gotcha. Appreciate that. Yeah, and. You know, and it's it, it's it is interesting how far it's come because just as a note, I you know I'll never forget as a brand new teacher in the late '80s, I'm I was in a building that was a very large building, and I didn't have a classroom, so I floated between rooms, and and at one point I went into the basement, and I floated down there, and just a side note, I passed someone coming up from the basement at the same time I was going down, and so we were able to fix that later, <laughs> but you know, when you went down there, there was the area that was very separate yeah. from everything else. And it was these in a building that had nothing but tile everywhere. This hallway had carpeting and the rooms had carpeting and, and uh, you know, we've come from, you know, something like that where, you know, kids would say to other kids, you have a class where, <laughs> and uh, that's the place with the carpeting, isn't it? And, you know, they, and uh, to, you know, really the services, they're delivered and uh, it, it may be just it's just extra support and so much like you've been talking about, which is cool. So that's come a long way in those generations from, you know, not dealing with it, being isolated in separate buildings to uh, to now where it's it's really kind of even a support for everybody else who might have the benefit of being in the same room. So um, yeah. Good stuff. I, you know, and by the way, I got to ask this because, you know, it's come out a couple of times. You guys wrote this book together. How'd that work? I mean, now I know you're both in the same university, but, 
you're in a very large university. I mean, that's that's possible that you guys are like three miles from each other on the same campus. Which, um, <laughs> and never mind COVID. So, <laughs> luckily, we are not three miles apart on the same campus. We we do share a flora in the same building, and uh, it's been great to get to learn from and with Mike and work on the book together. Um, you know, I think we we made it work by capitalizing on our sort of complementary interests and backgrounds, but then also realizing that we do bring, you know, somewhat different perspectives and life histories and so forth to this. Um, you know, Mike has talked about being kind of at the forefront of special education and really, um, you know, getting the field started and really, you know, understanding that. And I came in much later. Uh I, I, my first teaching job was in 2001. And, um, you know, so I, I also had the experience of learning about special education from the perspective and inclusive education from Linda. And then my teaching programs really emphasized that. And I had the capacity and I think the knowledge, even then as a new teacher, you know, 22 years old or something to say, well, we're going to make it happen like this. We're going to be, you know, inclusive educators. And so I, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I wanted to. And, you know, I think with our, you know, mutual commitments to these uh, strengths-based inclusive practices, we were really able to think about what do we already know together and as a field, and from that, what do we see as being next? And to me, it was kind of an opportunity for us to push ourselves to think about what will the future look like and how can we offer, you know, a path forward for practitioners and families who want to do what's best for students with disabilities. And so that's, I think, in my perspective, at least, uh, how we wrote it together and just really thinking about what are some of those things that we would want to offer to um, our readers. Well, and Jenny and I co-taught a, a doctoral seminar on inclusive, on inclusion, inclusive practices. Uh, it's offered like every other year. So uh, we probably taught it two or three times. Uh, but, you know, that uh, this book is sort of a, a, a compilation of uh, that semester long uh, work. And I think we we automatically knew uh, where one another was going to have the louder and the better singing voice uh, than, uh, you know, and uh, I think we do have a, a complimentary uh, skill set. And I, I'm fortunate that Jenny is uh, really uh, uh, a leader in uh, these these inclusive practices. And so uh, she's uh, leading a very large federal grant that's um, examining uh, placement practices. And, and I think she will be a voice uh, for many years to come in terms of uh, these issues. So. That's very kind and generous of you. Thank you. You're you're the, a wonderful leader in this area. So thank you. Very cool. This is this is neat. I'm always curious. And just by the way, the book does not read like two people wrote it. So it, it sounds like one voice. So I just did, did want to say that because that was part of where I was going with that question is I'm like, where, and but you kind of answered that before as we started moving forward. And I was like, because it reads like one voice. So that's that's cool. So good stuff. Uh, well, and I'll point out it's a pandemic book. Uh, we had uh, we had it planned, uh, and in fact, we had two books planned that we that uh, our editor wanted to 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 push together into one. And so, uh, we did all of this uh, uh, at our 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 separate homes uh, <laughs> online and and uh, you know using technology uh, today. So. Uh, it was written entirely during the shutdown. <laughs> wow. 
Very cool. It's funny, <laughs> funny how you said that. This is, uh, I had to create a new category of book, pandemic yeah. book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is what that means, written in yeah. isolation. Which, I know. <laughs> Very cool. <Right. laughs> um, so is there another way, book on the way f- from either both of you or uh, individually? What you got going? Well, I think what we're excited about is, as Mike talked about at the very beginning, a series of books that we will be co-editing that expand on the ideas offered in this book. And so, you know, the, this book, like you said, is a kind of a framework. And so uh, we've reached out to some of the leading thinkers in special education, and we'll be working with them uh, to develop books on topics ranging from co-teaching, which you've mentioned a few times, Steve, is so we're really excited about that book, um, school-wide approaches to inclusive education, uh, inclusive supports, differentiating instruction, academic instruction, assessment, universal design for learning, peer supports, among other uh, topics. So we're really excited about these books and the directions that they're going to be charting for uh, the field into the, the upcoming century years. Yeah, and we're grateful that Norton really wanted books focused for practitioners, uh, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, this this will probably be the broadest uh, sort of more, if you want to call it having a theoretical basis, but uh, all these other books will drill down to how to and, you know, how do you do these things and what happens when. So we're, we're, we're really uh, excited to, to see those um, uh, come out and a number will be out in the next 12 months, we hope so. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, best best wishes with those. Yeah, b- before we close, if someone wanted to connect with either of you or learn more, where would you send them? Uh, probably the easiest way is just go to our website on the University of Kansas Department of Special Education web webpage. Uh, you can just Google that, and both Jenny and I are there and and uh, reach out to us through those those mechanisms. And I'm, I'm, I know uh, I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that both of us would be quite happy to support answer questions, support folks who are who are doing the day-to-day work because that's where these ideas have to ha- have to be manifest somewhere that people have to do these things. So very nice. Well I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes so it's easy to find and get to that page and those pages as well as where your emails are and so forth. So cool. Uh, very good stuff. So uh, you know last two questions and I and uh, um, I'd love for both of you to answer these, but uh, we're, here we go this way. So the first one is, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Yeah, you know, I think I'll, so I can start. Um, I think it's an important question because there's a lot of frustrating points in this work in terms of the work around advocacy or in being educators and you know, systems change and all of those things. And it, you can look at it from a perspective of there's so much work to do. We're far from where we want to be. But I think the other side of that coin is that we've accomplished a lot in a relatively short amount of time. Um, you know, I, I was even born after IDEA. And so I get to start my work from a different place than my predecessors, many of whom have had a chance to learn from and with. And to me, that's an interesting vantage point. And so I'm personally optimistic and excited about what I see in the generations coming after me in terms of their real commitment to issues around social justice and the innovations that are happening in our world. And so I'm really excited about what's coming and how this you know, the next generations taking over the world are going to make it a better place. And so I think because of that, um, 
I'm not, I don't, you can't quit. <laughs> you know, you got to set it up in as, as a good a place that you can leave it for the next people as possible. And so I think there's just so much that's been done and so many things that we're continuing to do that it stays exciting and interesting to me. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I just echo that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, you've touched on it, Steve. Um, you know, it's easy on a day-to-day -day basis to think we're not making any progress, you know. Uh, you know, uh, but I think if you look at uh, progress over the last 40, 50 years and you, you kind of look at how things were and how they are now, uh, there is progress. And, uh, you know, I think at, at any point in time, educators need to step back and say, OK, there has been progress. I, you know, I've I, I, I got to look beyond just what's in front of me. You know, people get into this field, and I think education in general, because they have a passion for it. They want to make a difference. They believe in social justice. They believe that education is, you know, a gateway to better things. And, uh, you know, I think that that, that remains true and that, uh, you know, uh, we have to we we have to put ourselves in circumstances where we can uh, we can see some of the difference that we make. And of course, interacting day in and day out with students and with families. And, uh, you know, those are ways that we can, uh, uh, you know, see things beyond just what seems uh, uh, unconquerable at times. Mm -hmm. Great information, and you know that is sometimes yeah, just things get to be it's a giant wall or barrier or just tsunami of water, whatever you want to call it. It's just good stuff. So, and, and I think we need encouragement from times to times to be able to say how did how do you move on? How do you keep going? So, hey, I appreciate your answers. I, you know, last question I have for you both goes like this: uh, Do you have a, te a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if you got a chance to say thank you? I I feel like I've had a lot of really influential teachers in my life. Uh, things that, um, you know, going back to grade school activities I remember doing and things I remember teachers saying. And so, you know, I think all of those teachers, K through 12, in terms of setting me up to be on a a place where I was included, my strengths were valued. I was a member of those classrooms. I didn't have to prove my worth to anybody. You know, they accepted me as who I was and tried to help me grow and develop. And, you know, there's countless teachers. I think every teacher did that in a different way. I was very fortunate. I didn't have any bad teachers. I was a kid who liked school, liked my teachers. You know, it was great. Um, but I do think that, you know, from a professional point of view, Linda, the teacher I mentioned who um, got me started in the field is probably the one of the most influential in terms of my day in and day out work. And, uh, you know, I dedicated my dissertation to her and her daughter and I meant it. You know, she was a person that I just truly thank for opening my eyes to the world and understanding a whole you know, different perspective that I had not even considered before. And so, you know, I, I thank all of the teachers who are doing this really important work every day and making a difference in those small interactions every day with children. I hope they continue to feel, um, you know, able and, um, you know, supported to be those great people in the lives of kids and families. Very nice. But I would just say, I, I, as I think back over, you know, uh, K-12, uh, college, the, the things that stand out are people that 
told me that I did something well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that I was good at something. And so I think that's one of the power of these strengths-based approaches that, you know, parents and students want to hear about what people think that they're good at. And, and you know, that's something that keeps you going. And I think that's true for teachers as well. They want to hear what they do well. So uh, I, I love that. That's, you know, you really do. Hey, Mike and Jenny, thanks so much for talking with me today. This has been awesome. I, you know, inclusive education and a strengths-based era, mapping the future of the field. You published through Norton and Company in uh, 2021, which is awesome. It, it makes a powerful statement for looking at our special education practices. It's practical as well as thought-provoking. Wishing you the best in all you do. Take care. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you so much for having us. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.